On this episode of Water Flying, I am sitting down with Dan Default, a seaplane game warden and also an engineer and innovator in the seaplane industry. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to Water Flying. I am sitting down with my good friend, Dan Default, who I've been wanting to bring on the podcast for a long time now. And of all places, we've hooked up at Sun and Fun 2023 uh, to actually sit down and talk about his amazing experiences, uh, his uh, wisdom that he's brought to the table, and all the things that this incredible man has done with seaplanes. So, Dan, welcome to Water Flying. It's good to finally sit down with you. Thank you, Steve. It's been great. It's uh, great to sit down here also. Yeah, so uh, Dan has developed several products for seaplanes and tailwheel bush planes and uh, also has a background in being a game warden and flying for lodges in Alaska and all kinds of things. And we are going to sit down and kind of explore that today. So, Dan, where did all of this begin, this, this passion for aviation that has led you on this pretty amazing journey of yours? Well, quite a long time ago, my dad had a... Uh, Taylor craft and he was rebuilding into the garage I was about 12 years old or so and um, got the airplane finished and at 14 years old he had me sitting on a cushion flying the airplane couldn't reach the rudder pedals but I could fly the airplane and land it good enough uh, and then uh, a local airport had a super cub also that uh, I got flying and on my 16th birthday I was able to solo that super cub so, oh well as a super cub owner that makes me happy <laughs> super cub's the greatest airplane in the world <laughs> so soloed in a super cub i mean it doesn't get any better than that it doesn't it, they had a brand new super cub uh, they had just bought uh, right from the factory and uh, it was just it was a beautiful airplane oh that's incredible and how, how where did you go from there i mean i started at 10 years old started writing letters to airlines started doing my private pilot at 15 uh working 20 hours a, a week uh to afford that 35 dollar lesson in a cessna 152 where did you go from that solo flight in the super cup because you kind of stayed uh, must have made an impression on you because you kind of stayed in in the tailwheel and bush pilot world it did. Um, I was going to school, high school part time, and you know, and working part time. I was going to high school full time, working part time. The um, uh, every all the money I made went into you know buying time in that Super Cub, and so I decided on on my uh, in the eleventh grade that um, I'd like to go to A and P school. Uh, so I convinced my high school to let me go to skip the 12th grade and go to the A&P school, uh, which they did. And I had to take an English 12 class to, to make up that difference. But uh, that happened during the summertime. And uh, from that on, I went to A&P school in Limerick, Maine. Uh, a fellow named Dana Smith was operating the school uh, two years there. And after that, uh, went on and drove up to Alaska, uh, worked up there for a company called Aero Helicopters for a year. Wow. Yeah, so uh, Era was flying some pretty big old round engine stuff, if I remember correctly, at that point. 
Yeah, we had some things called metro liners and conveyors. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really neat. A really nice place to work. That's right. Uh, they had a whole bunch of metro liners. Yeah, they did. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was all different stuff than I had been working on. You're know, my seeing my dad work on tele- telegraphs and stuff like that. But um, I did it for a year. It was a lot of fun. Uh, came back to Maine um, and uh, worked on Super Cubs and. Uh, for a period of time, I worked for a company called Timberland Shoe Company. They were in Newmarket, New Hampshire. They had uh, 200 employees at the time, and I was working in research and development with them and uh, helped them develop some three-dimensional stitching computer stuff that they patented and, and uh, went on to fame and fortune with, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't uh, seen Timberland Shoes, I'm sure everyone's familiar with them, but they're, you know, outdoorsy shoes. I mean, that's uh, where they're meant to, to operate in. They're, they're the sh- shoes to operate in the environment. So Yeah, yeah, they were, it was a fun company to work for. Um, were they based in Maine? So, you know, everyone knows, I think, L.L. Bean is what is associated with Maine uh, and their, and their uh, duck boots. Right, they were, they were in Newmarket, New Hampshire. Um, they, um, like I said, they had 200 employees, and uh, the the owners, Stan and Herman, uh, Sydney and Herman Schwartz, were the owners, and they they really liked me a lot. Uh, and, uh, they gave me a lot of leeway in in working with new development of their products and stuff like that. So it was it was a lot of fun, and I guess my innovation stuff started there. Wow, problem solving, yeah, which you've gone exactly. on to continue to do. So. Uh, How'd you go from there? So you're working for Timbaland, and then at some point uh, you started working for the government. Well, I did. I um, prior to the government, though, I worked. Uh, I was rebuilding Super Cubs at my home, uh, and um, at one time this um, this uh, I well, let me go back a little bit. The I worked for Roger Curry's at Curry's Flying Service for uh, oh, three that's years, right, yeah, three years, Our and. Good and uh, then uh, I got the opportunity to fly a beaver up in Alaska for a lodge in King Salmon uh, for a company called Cusack's, uh, Mike Cusack, uh, Alaska's, I think it was Alaska Wilderness Lodge. Well, let's uh, talk about Roger real quick because uh, I've had the new Roger, Paradis, yes. on, on the podcast. And unfortunately, we never got to sit down and record with Roger Courier who uh, Susan and uh, Roger were really close friends, and I'd go fly with them every year in the 195 and, and in the Beaver. So uh, I guess both of us have got some 195 float time, which is kind of hard to get. <laughs> it is. It's, it was, it, the 195 was a really interesting airplane. I flew it quite a bit. Um, not sure how much time I actually have in it. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun flying that plane. They had a PA-12. They had the Beaver. Uh, had the 180 uh, Cessna 180 on on uh, 2870 floats and and uh, I think the most fun I had flying was the uh, PA12. Uh, you know, we do a lot of surveys as far as fire patrols and stuff like that with the PA12, and it was just a fun flying airplane. Uh, the Beaver was a blast. Um, what a great place to fly! It's such a beautiful area to fly in with yeah, a beaver oh the main lakes and the you know anything north of you know the, of that area the you know the the you know the hills and stuff are you know there there's not very much for population and roads are all dirt and it's just you know, the lakes are everywhere so it's just absolutely beautiful i don't know that people realize how much wilderness there is in maine in the lower 48 i mean when you think of the lower 48 uh, maine can have some of the most 
unbelievable wilderness uh, that's unpopulated. It's actually very refreshing. It is. It's in most everything's open to seaplanes. Um, there is a waterway that's closed, uh, the Yalagash Waterway. It's a, closed to all motors, actually, even boat motors. Uh, but everybody respects that. Um, the uh, it's a most everything in Maine is all open to uh, seaplanes and um, you know seaplane flyers. Yeah. So you got a, uh, you, I think you had met someone in Alaska, and then while you were at Couriers, you got a, a outreach saying uh, they were looking for a pilot? Yeah, so the story is I, I spent some time, and I went up to Alaska to meet a friend. Uh, on my way back, I had this jacket on uh, that had an airplane on it, and the guy sat next to me, he says, hey, do you fly? And I said, yeah, I fly for Couriers Flying Service in Maine. He says, if you ever thought about coming out to Alaska to fly? And I said, boy, I'd love to. You're and uh, so he said, well, I'll keep you in mind. And, you know, I thought about it. And six or eight months later, while I was flying for Roger, he calls me. He says, hey, uh, we need you up here Monday morning, and you got to have 100 hours of beaver time. And I said, well, that's great. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is like, you know, the Wednesday before. And he's like, oh, okay, well, i got to look and make sure. I told him, right, that I had 100 hours. I went through my books, and I guess I did. And, and uh, ended up there in uh, King Salmon and flew that summer and the and half the summer of the next, uh, for them, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was like a pilot and a guide up there also. Mm-hmm. And so we, I carry a guide and we carry, uh, four people. I'd take two people fishing and the guide would take two people. And, and most everything was working in rivers. Uh, so we'd land in these, you know, really shallow rivers with the beaver with, you know, wing rocks, with, rocks, <laughs> lots and, of yeah, rocks. <laughs> and, you know, the one wing would be over each bank of the river. And it's like, you know, it was really hard to turn, but, um, I call those creeks. Yeah, creeks. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, then uh, the, the remaining years were done in Port Allsworth, Alaska, flying uh, for Alaska Wilderness Lodge uh, on, uh, and, uh, near the, where the Allsworths are, and uh, Glenn and B. Allsworth, you know, we'd do a lot, of, uh, we'd meet them a lot of times and talk and, you know, just have a good time. Wonderful people. Uh, flying Alaska Lodges, I think that's... Uh you know, a dream of a lot of pilots that are probably listening. Uh, how many seasons did you spend up there? Five. Wow. Yeah. And that, uh, I mean, that, that must have been incredible. I mean, the, the, the landscapes, the beauty of, of the area up there is just amazing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just wonderful memories, uh, you know, flying, uh, fishing with bears, and, you know, and the experiences with the bears. And because uh, yeah. you're fishing for salmon and the bears are coming for salmon as well yeah they exactly uh yeah there's an instance where you know we i couldn't start the airplane up quick enough because the bear was underneath the floats eating yeah. eating the salmon and <laughs> the prop would have hit the bear you know so we had to wait till the bear was finished before a, a prop leave. strike with a bear uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that just pisses them off yeah it's not a good situation it wouldn't yeah it wouldn't make it very good situation for the Department of uh, Fisheries either, or uh, you know, striking a bear. But um, I always tell people um, uh, when you're in Alaska, tape the bear spray onto your uh, lift strut. Yeah, because you don't want to have to get into the airplane to get the bear spray. Because if if you take that long to get it, the bear's going to be eating you, and and so you need to be able to rip it off the lift strut. Right, and yeah. and use it when you need it. We, yeah, I don't know if I've ever used bear spray. Um, we we, had, we did carry protection with you know shotguns, and it was usually just cracker shells, um, and uh, that would be enough to yeah, get them, get just them to away. spook them away. Yeah, it didn't. 
They, most of the bears were pretty good. The young juveniles were a little bit sometimes of a problem. They, you know, they just didn't understand. They're nosy. Yeah. And, uh, inquisitive. They, <laughs> in, exactly. Inquisitive. And, and they would get really close. You know, when I, when I say close, probably 25 or 30 feet away before they realize, okay, we shouldn't be here. Um, and a young bear is still several hundred pounds. Oh, yeah. They're, they're like our main black bears. You know, they're, they're pretty big. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what were some of your fondest memories, I guess, of, of the lodge work or, you know, maybe some of the, the, the flights that really stand out, flying the, the lodge stuff? So my fondest memories, I think, were usually on Fridays. Uh, we, usually, we had 12 guests that usually came every week. And usually on Fridays, it was a relaxing day where you know, the, the guys still wanted to go out fishing and get that last day of fishing in. But the, the women's had had enough. They didn't want to go fishing anymore. <laughs> so I would take them to Dick Pernicke's camp on uh, on uh, twin lakes mm-hmm. and uh we would meet dick and we'd we'd walk up the mountain and eat blueberries and and you know we'd go up to this place called teetering rock and uh we'd sit just sit on the mountainside and nice warm sunny day and eat just enjoy it yeah, yeah it was just wonderful so that's my fondest memories of alaska wow and you mentioned in landing in these creeks and and again the rocks and and the trees would be really close to the shorelines you're you're you know you have current to deal with um it you know it's a pretty demanding environment for a seaplane pilot it is it was interesting turning around in a creek where you bump the floats and you actually stuck the float against the and let the creek current turn the plane turn the, so you can get pull to you around yeah, yeah so you can take off the other way you know where you just landed so it was uh that, it was really interesting it was fun uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, you had to be on your toes and understand the current. And, and That's the first time anyone has mentioned that technique on the podcast, which is pretty cool. So he actually knows the floats in onto the shoreline with the engine running, with the engine running and let the current sway the, the uh, stern of the floats around That's right, and the tail of the airplane around. Yeah, yeah. Then, That's a great technique. <laughs> it is. And then, you know, and then you're, you're in a position to take off in the, in the section that you landed. Yeah, which is what you want because you know it's clear because it worked on the way in. That's right. That's right. So, oh, that's great stuff. So, five years flying bush. You were doing 206s and beavers, mostly beaver, I think. We uh, did a 206 for like six or eight months, and they decided the 206 wasn't enough uh, at the lodge. So, we, they got another, a third beaver, and uh, we flew all beavers mostly. Oh, that's awesome. Great airplane. Great airplane. <laughs> so, you ended up going back to Maine at some point. How how that come after five seasons so the lodge work is was a lot of fun it still is i still get calls sometimes to go mm-hmm. up and fly i think the last year i flew was 2001 uh, most everything i was doing was in the mid 90s um so i came back to maine and started working on cubs again building airplanes uh one day uh, uh, a game warden came in the driveway and and somebody had shot a, a small deer illegally at, in my yard and he said hey are you I knew you work on planes and fly. He says, why don't you come with fly for the warden service? And I was like, well, maybe I was on a little bit on the other side of this whole deal. But he says, that's perfect. That's you you might have been chasing me at some point. <laughs> yeah. He said, that's just what we want. So um, uh, I got looking into it, and lo and behold, went through the State Police Academy and Maine Warden Service Academy and became a game warden pilot and flew for them for 10 years and did a lot with uh, inland fisheries and wildlife. We are monitoring eagles and surveys and dropping fish into lakes and, and stocking and uh, it was just a, a really a good time of my life well I, I definitely want to spend some time talking about this so you were flying a 185 
for the warden service, correct? Or yes. 180? It was a 185. We had three 185s that we flew. Uh, we were assigned our own airplane, so we weren't switching airplanes too much. Um, and uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, you get assigned an aircraft. It, it, it's really a good thing because you you hear you know the airplane very well. You know, uh, you know when maintenance is due. You know if there's a little rattle somewhere. You know it's not something new. You know it's something new, and you can address it um, uh, when you fly. I think when. My opinion was when you switch airplanes all the time, uh, you really don't know that airplane. You don't. It's not like wearing a good pair. And when you're going in the bush, mm-hmm. you need to know the airplane. You need to know your airplane. Yeah, it's good. it's like a, putting on a good set of fitting, fitting jeans. You know, you just you you know that airplane. You feel it. You know its little quirks. You know everything about it. And uh, you know you can. Roll when you're doing it. real demanding flying, really remote, right? That's a really good deal. And and the fact that you have your A and P. Uh, really is a, a tremendous asset as well uh, to doing that kind of flying. It is. Uh, it, we, flying for the main warden service, we didn't do much maintenance on, our, on my own airplane. We, the two of us were mechanics. That were Two of the pilot, three pilots were mechanics, but uh, we still hired outside uh, company to do the maintenance on it. Uh, a lot of times we'd have the... Um, uh, the uh, main... Um, Oh, forest service do our maintenance on the on the airplanes which they did an excellent job but if you were stuck in the bush like i was in maine last year with a bad solenoid yeah. as i engaged i was out on lobster lake right. and engaged the the starter and it didn't disengage oh, hey, i was there i was there also yeah that was pretty amazing there were what like 42 seaplanes oh, out there that day my goodness it was just word of mouth and everybody showed up it was such a great time it was insane it was, it was beautiful that that crescent beach that oh got it it had to be a half mile it was long full of airplanes and it was wingtip to wingtip airplanes a, that was amazing it was a, it was the biggest seaplane non-event that i've ever flown to <laughs> the, the non-event event exactly <laughs> uh and it just started out hey we're gonna have a barbecue out out that's, at that, lobster lake that's right and it's in the middle of nowhere i right. mean it's so remote and beautiful yeah. out there and white sandy beach which is not common right. in maine that's right <laughs> that's right it's just beautiful it was a, the perfect day for it uh yeah we had all we all had a good time so I, I left out of there with the starter somewhat engaged, and I climbed up and circled the lake in case I had to come back down on it. And then I kind of bolted over to the birches, and, and um, uh, you know, John and, and uh, is, accommodates us and puts us up during Greenville. Yeah. And so he has a seaplane base and mm-hmm. a hangar. And so I just bolted from Lobster Lake as fast as I could over to uh, the birches sure. and uh, so I could kind of do do figure out what was going on with my airplane mm-hmm. and after assessing starters and getting a starter on the way and getting solenoids on the way a couple taps of a hammer and it was enough to get to pk floats for a quick repair good good, <laughs> good. so but so you were flying i mean when you were flying the 185 for the uh, warden service you were flying floats skis and and wheels that's so right yep. you had all three we did all three we weren't on wheels very much uh there's a because if it was, if the water was soft, exactly. you were on floats. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, uh, you know, there was a period of time probably, we did a lot of night flying uh, for oh. the warden service. Um, so we'd be on wheels usually during that period of deer hunting season started in November. And so we'd be flying at two in the morning. Uh, and most of those times we'd be on wheels. Uh, and you're right, as soon as, you know, the lakes froze up and all that, we'd put the skis right on it and... Um, 
uh, fly skis. And it's great float flying into like the beginning of October in Maine. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it's just gorgeous. The change most, of season up there. Most beautiful time of year in Maine. That, that, those two, three months in, in late, you know, late summer and fall, uh, just absolutely gorgeous. It is. So were the, the deer hunters just positioning or were they spotlight hunting? What were they doing at night? Yes, we we would do program, uh, you know, we'd work with, uh, do these details where I would support uh, whatever was going on on the ground. It could be, um, you know, somebody that they were watching uh, leave a home that they knew was night hunting. Uh, I would see, you know, I would look for them lighting fields and shooting deer illegally at night. Yeah. Um, wow. But you also did, I mean, you were involved in all kinds of conservation and, and research flights. So uh, we were talking about loons because we recently, as we've talked about many times on the show, uh, had a fight uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, and loons were one of the major kind of concerns that they were using uh, against us, mm-hmm. saying that seaplanes uh, would cause nest abandonment. And so what I like is is having someone like you on board that's a, a professional that that can tell us you were actually monitoring loon reproduction and and uh the populations and and you were doing that with seaplanes and didn't see i don't think any adverse effects right um so along with loons we did all kinds of it we did the we did uh, eagles and fish and uh fish would actually have tags we'd monitor them through the ice the fish would be under the ice and we'd monitor where they were with antennas on the in the airplane um, the, the, uh, we did a lot with eagles and, uh, bears and lynx that were tagged and, and we could monitor them also. The loons were, um, they, they seemed, um, you know, annoyed a lot, uh, by the airplanes, but actually we were dumping fish and we were, uh, and you said they would come in. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they loved us. So they, they, um, you know, we dumped the first dump. Of fish and and uh, when we come back for the second and they'd be gorging on the fish that we just dumped. So the, you know we did a lot of benefit for the loons. Um, we did monitor the loons uh, in the spring, um, not during fish stocking, but uh, during you know for a, you know, a detailed, basically specifically for the loons. And uh, we we count the loons on the lakes and, and uh, uh, when they were getting ready to mate and nest. And um, they uh, yeah they. they Loons are just, you know, they see everything as a threat. I think. I think they they just they do see a, an eagle. They fly by. They'll squawk and you know put their head down. And they see another male uh, land on the lake. Exactly. Um, if there's already a male on the lake that's courting a, a right. female, they'll they'll react when another male comes in. Right. Um, and for you know, kind of describing the loons, I don't think a lot of people have been exposed to them or familiar with them. But their their nearest cousin is the penguin. Yeah, and so they they can't walk on land, so they build their nest very close to the the water's edge. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest threats that we see is number one loss of habitat. And when you look down at like places like New Hampshire where they've built around the lakes, uh, but also wake uh, wakeboarding boats and things like that that make these huge wakes flood the nest because the nests are right on the shoreline. Right. Yeah. The, the I would say that was the biggest thing. You, you know. I can understand, you know, uh, where people would be upset uh, thinking that loons were, the airplanes were, were causing the loons to, you know, jump off the nest and not be there. But it's, I don't believe that's happening at all. I think that, you know, the airplane, the seaplane doesn't land next to the 
a grassy area on a lake usually it's you know it's usually you know someplace it's a marshy area where they go and that's too shallow for us especially in a place like maine right and you know everybody when they're flying seaplanes you need to you know understand where you're landing and make sure there's no rocks or or you know you're not going to get stuck into a muddy area or shallow area so those are the areas that you avoid usually with a seaplane and those are the nesting areas and uh, but I've never seen a loon jump off a nest because I'm taxiing up to a shoreline or anything like that. It's usually the airplane's taxiing slow. It's not like a jet boat or, you know, where they're you know, scooting around and nest at, uh, you know, higher speeds and stuff like that. So I really, I mean, loons are loons. They just, they're aggressive. Uh, and I think people think that, you know, you know that airplanes uh, have a, Adverse effect Adver- on them, yeah, and the- yeah, and you know, you, I, I can be fishing on a lake, and I'll see an eagle fly over, and a loon will just know, squawk away, squawk away, just like they do with us with the airplanes. Uh, so, um, it's a threat. I mean, the eagles are more of a threat than us because the eagle's a predatory bird that's going to come down and steal the chicks. Or, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's funny. So we, you mentioned uh, when you were dropping fish, but we didn't really go into that. So one of the things that you were very involved in, which they. Acted, they, they still do quite prolifically in Maine, which is kind of unique, is you're doing fish restoration. So they'll go and they'll take non-native fish species and they'll eradicate them out of a, a body of water. Uh, and then they'll go in and restock it with a native uh, species. That's so right. seaplanes are very engaged in places like Maine and actually doing habitat restoration and, and, and uh, restoration of of uh, uh, local species uh, to protect the, the 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 native fish, and so you you guys actually put uh, uh, rolling drop tanks on the Cessna 185s on top of the floats and would go in and seed uh, seed pop, new populations. Explain that mission because it's a fascinating mission. Right, it's probably some of the most fun flying I've ever done. Is you know, as fish stocking. We do usually do it twice a year. We do it a big stocking in the fall and uh, a little bit less in the springtime. But uh, the the way that worked is that the hatchery trucks or the fish hatcheries that couldn't, rather than carry fish in on baskets and, and uh, or you know walking uh, fish into. Uh, remote ponds and lakes, which is which is also hard on the fish, and you, because you know they need oxygen, you know, for, for that period of time. Um, we'd do it with the airplanes, and so the airplanes would have oxygen that would be pumped into these two tanks on each one on each side of the of the floats. We'd carry ninety pounds of fish uh, on each in each tank, and um, we drop these fish uh, most of the time by air, uh, as long as the fish weren't very big. Uh, we could drop them by air. If the fish got, you know, much larger, like 8 or 10 or 12 inches long, we'd have to land and roll the tanks to drop them because of the, the, the bladders in the fish can't take... And the take, impact on the bladders. ...can't take the, the, the drop. The yeah. smaller fish can take it all. They can, you know, they can, they just... They, you never see any problems with the smaller fish. And these are like 4 or 5 inches long, the smaller yeah, fish. probably a little bit bigger than that. About, most of the fish that we stock are 6 or... Six or so inches from the air, okay. uh, we will cross over the edge of a lake. Uh, the lake can be like a small fifty-acre pond. Um, That's really remote. And when we say these places are really remote, I mean, if we got to like Eeyore Sikorsky's fish camp, uh, has a fish camp a hundred miles out on a dirt road. Right. If you don't go there by seaplane, 
and a lot of these lakes are that remote or more remote, the the damage or the stress on the fish going a hundred miles on a rough logging road in right. tanks right. across the surface. Mm-hmm. Really, the seaplanes are the best way to do this, and dropping them by air is far less stressful for the fish than than actually. Uh, trucking them in or going by land. That's right. You know, a truck, you know, to take that distance in a truck, you know, through a road network of dirt roads could be an hour or two hours where, you know, a short flight of 15 minutes for the fish is less stressful. Yeah. And you were mentioning, so that's where the loons come in, where we're actually, the loons would go and take advantage of these fish drops. Oh, they loved us. Yeah, it was great. It was just free food. It was. It was fantastic. They, they would gorge, too. I mean, until the fish figured out, okay, we've got to go somewhere. And usually when you dump fish, they seem to stay in a certain area and, and uh, kind of congregate yeah, and get their until, senses about themselves. Yeah and, then, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you know, they would dissipate and, and, you know, the loons would be full and the fish would you know, go on their way. Well, I think they're coming from like a fish farm scenario. Yeah. And, and so they're used to being in a smaller tank. That's right. Probably. And so it probably takes them a little while to realize that they don't have boundaries. Right. The, the boundaries and, are bigger. And another thing they do is they stay at the surface. They don't go down because, they, you know, they're getting... I used to being fed tank. from the top. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So uh, they, uh, you know, the fish, they, they, it takes them a while to find Acclimate. their place. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I imagine... You know, all kinds of birds uh, take advantage of that, but the survival rates are good, and and the populations, you know, thrive once right. they're once they're there. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's you know, when we look at ways seaplanes are being used to help protect the environment and our natural resources, you know, so much of what we do is protecting seaplane access because of the perceptions of the negative effects we have on environment, and any time that we can show, you know, we know as pilots, especially those of us that have been involved in some of these uh, more unique uh, uh, operations, that we know that seaplanes are being used to protect the environment and to to help the situation. We're using seaplanes for firefighting with the fire boss and the CL-415s and and everything else. And we're protecting forestry and, and these natural assets. So it's really hard when we get labeled and we have to have all these pushbacks about us being, you know, bad for the environment because actually seaplanes, whether it be, you know, we operated fish and wildlife here in Florida has operated lake amphibians. Uh, Louisiana has a bunch of 206s. They're about to get Kodiaks Mm -hmm. uh, for Louisiana fish and wildlife. Maine, Minnesota, Alaska, all these fish and wildlife departments use seaplanes to help, as U.S. Fish and Wildlife does, to help protect these resources that we're being accused of in many cases of, of, you know, being detrimental to. Right. I think, you know, it's a lot of understanding what our mission is and what we do. I think, you know, it's, um, uh, I think people, if once they understand that, you know, the seaplanes bring a lot of benefit to natural resources, uh, you know, just the ability to take and, and monitor something that's not, easily monitored by the side of the road in, in a vehicle, uh, you we're able to go out and look at an environment that's, you know, uh, away from the highways and, and away from, you know, uh, populations. And, and uh, the, the, the effects uh, on wildlife is, is not... It, 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 there's a benefit to it because, I mean, we're able to say, okay, there may be a problem here. When we were monitoring eagles, you know, we'd fly, um, a lot of the coastal islands in Maine had eagle nests, and we'd fly 
uh, we could count the chicks in the nest. We knew that's amazing. Yeah, and uh, that's amazing. And uh, we knew their development. We'd we usually monitor the nest three times. We'd see that the that she was sitting on a nest, mm-hmm. and we'd we could we'd fly back another two or three weeks later and monitor and count the chicks in the nest. Um, and, and you were doing this from air. Is this still photography, or are we talking like a FLIR ball, or how, how or just just an eye count, just, just an a visual, count, an eye count? We'd be we'd, wow. we'd fly by with a with a biologist, and uh, they would uh, we'd all count the nest, count the chicks, and and uh, we'd do it one more time. Sometimes <coughs> we'd um, check on a nest two or three times, um, and um, we'd we look for new nests and. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just, it didn't bother them too much at all. It, it, you, sometimes the male would jump off the nest and fly towards us. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, so we had a pushback. Lake Apopka here, uh, uh, a couple years ago, uh, we had a uh, bird sanctuary on the south side of the lake, and uh, they were posing a, a seaplane base uh, that was being developed that had been used as a seaplane base for decades. Mm-hmm. And, and Dave Hinch, matter of fact, is... Uh, building a hangar there right now and has Florida seaplanes and has a training operation and he does a little bit of flight seeking and great guy. Uh, actually just bought uh, Waco on, on uh, Aeroset Amphibs and uh, flies a Kodiak on Amphibs, uh, flew a PC-6 on, on Amphibs and, and great guy and, and great steward and, and you know, he, he's really proactive with the community and yet one of the biggest pushbacks was our effect on eagles and uh, we were talking about it earlier. I have two nesting eagles on on my street, and, you know, literally two doors down from me. I got buzzed this morning by a bald eagle uh, going and getting the paper out of the front yard. And my biggest concern is is the eagles will land on my super cub wings with their talons and eat a fish. Yeah, and and so they're not intimidated by us at all. No. <laughs> No, when we when we monitor eagles, they'd actually we'd be circling a nest, and they would circle with us. Uh, so the the airplanes, I didn't bother the eagles. Uh, any other birds, uh, you know, they seem to get away from us. And but uh, the eagles, just like okay, you're just another big old bird, and we're gonna fly around and see what you were, you know what you're looking at. It's just they, they it didn't bother the eagles a lot at all. And we're seeing more and more pushback about us not where. There's attempts to restrict our access because of eagle nesting areas mm-hmm. or eagle habitat. And it's like, if you're us and you're flying with these birds and you, you're operating in their environment, you realize that we are not a threat to these no, these. we didn't see that at all, at all in Maine either. It was just, you know, the, the eagles, um, it, it, it didn't bother them at all. When we, there was a biologist, his name is Charlie Todd, and Charlie was probably one of the foremost eagle people in, in the world, actually. And, and they, we started out with 25 nesting eagles, and I believe now there's over 1,000. Um, yeah. So it's, it, the, the eagles are doing very well. And same thing. So bear in Alaska. It's not uncommon to see a bear on a float. Yeah, I've had it. Uh, moose destroying a fabric airplane. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know. That's right. Uh, and so you don't see, and, and we even talked, Otters. I mean, I, it, it's been very common for me to have otters eating shellfish uh, on my floats. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, they, they're not bothered by it at all. And it, so I, I've asked this several times, and I'll, can, I'll put the plea out there to our listeners one more time. If you ever see wildlife 
on or near a seaplane in the environment, please take photos of it and send those photos to us because it's really important that we have photos to establish this when we do these advocacy fights mm-hmm. uh, that we can show, you know, and it's not the same airplane every time, uh, like my airplane. But, you know, this does occur and it's very normal. I, we were in Minnesota uh, a couple months ago and, and there were deer tracks all over the beach walking around where the airplanes were, you know, and I just love seeing that stuff right. because, you know, it's, it's really good stuff. So uh, moose, I mean, and you get into like the moose counting missions and, and stuff like that. This is an area that you want seaplanes because it's, it's wooded areas that are incredibly heavily wooded. And the only potential safe landing option is on the lake that the moose are going and feeding next to with these creeks, mm-hmm. uh, these inflow areas to the lakes. Um, the only safe landing spot for someone doing research and monitoring the moose populations would be in a water landing situation. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, when we monitored moose, um, we did, long ago, we did um, the counts for, during the middle of the summertime. The moose really usually enter the bogs when it's really warm and, and they're eating the new growth that's on the bottom that's within like four or, or they're, you know, the height of a moose that they could get down and, and chew on that on that good new green growth underneath um, the moose we also monitored moose in the winter time uh, where we could uh, we could see their tracks in the snow and we we count the moose uh, there are certain places in Maine where you count two hundred moose in, oh, in, in in a short amount of time you know in a, in a, within you know a four hour period of time uh, and then there were places where uh, you know Moose had a habitat that may have gotten cut down by logging companies uh, that you know that harvested trees, uh, which is, is also can be good for moose. Uh, that you know the growth, the, the everything yeah, gets cut cut down. It has nice been, fresh little uh, right. They so, they love the little buds on on the regrowth. <laughs> right, and we can see the moose a lot better too that way. Yeah. You know, in in the winter time, uh, but uh, um, so we did. Yeah, so we did a lot with the moose. Um, we did a lot with lynx, uh, mostly in the very northern part of Maine, uh, and a whole bunch with bears. You know, the collared bears. We'd had probably uh, 300 bears that we monitored. 300 uh, bears that you were monitoring? That's mm-hmm. a lot of flying. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was three of us at one time flying for a week. Um, you were just monitoring that they were at the nest. And um, and then what we We'd mark the location of the nest. We have, we have antennas on the airplanes. We mark the location. When I say nest, they, you know, or den or whatever. Uh, there was actually one bear that we monitored that was on an actual nest. It would sleep on top of a nest, like a, a, in, and the snow would cover the bear, and, uh, and and she just slept right on the outside of the nest. Wow! And, uh, just right near Old Town, Maine, and uh, it was it was strange because she was the only one that did that and. But most of the other bears were inside of a den, usually under a big uh, uh, rock pile or, or a pile little, of stumps little. or something like that. And um, we got invited uh, to, as pilots, to go on any time we wanted to. We'd walk in on a snowy day or something where we couldn't fly and, and go. They would actually get in the tranquilize the bear do a dart gun yeah tranquilize the bear tranquilize the bear and you know we pull the babies out weigh them and take a blood samples and you know get pictures of my wife holding three baby cubs in her arms (laughs) so um it was a lot of fun um that was uh that was a lot of flying too so you know like i said probably 
probably a week's worth of, of uh, constant flying for three of us. Did you always go back to a base uh, at the end of the day, or did you spend nights out in the bush uh, sometimes? So, so the, the, the Warden airplanes are set. Uh, one is in North. There's three divisions. There's one in northern Maine, one in Greenville. Greenville is our base. Which uh, is interesting. We should talk about that because the state of Maine, the Inland Fisheries Department, actually has their own seaplane base. Right. Is that the only one in Maine? Uh, it nope. They have one in uh, Eagle Lake in Maine. Eagle okay. Lake uh, it has its uh, it has a residence. residence so the there st- too. it's a state-run seaplane base, it is. which is great, and they host the Greenville International Seaplane Fly-in every they, year. They do. We clean the hangar every year, <laughs> and you know, get everything nice and pristine, clean for uh, all the exhibitors and. Uh, and then they had a southern warden pilot, which uh, I was the southern warden pilot, where I kept the airplane actually at my house that I had uh, on, a, on a river. And so, nice. so, yeah, so, on river. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. on, yeah, yeah, on that's the river. Good. And, and uh, so uh, that worked out really well. I mean, the response time was immediate. I just, you know, if there was a call for you know, an emergency or you know, we did a lot of search and rescue for, uh, you know, f- certain times for, you know, somebody that was missing in the woods or a lot of. Uh, a lot of people would be would leave their homes, and, and it happened in this, this time of year where elderly people would leave, leave their homes and want to go walk their property lines and get lost. Uh, so we'd be doing a lot of that. Uh, so all uh, kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, so you know, Mike Kincaid was talking about that with the Alaska State Troopers, which are aviation based as well, mm-hmm. and they have Super Cubs and one eighty fives and all kinds of stuff. And and the troopers would have their airplanes at their house for yeah. a quick response. Yeah, it was great. We it worked out really perfectly well. You know, we like I said, our our main base was in Greenville, so any any maintenance or float changes or putting skis on was done there at Greenville. Uh, but having the airplanes uh, with us at our own at our own homes or our own bases uh, worked out really well. Wow, that's awesome. So that was a wonderful, how long were you with the, so you kind of went warden, inland fisheries, it was kind of a, a dual role or kind of a, a complementary role, I think. It between was. The two. So, yeah, the warden service was more of the law enforcement side of it, uh, where if we did flights in the middle of the night or we did certain details for uh, um, for law enforcement, we did a lot with Maine State Police. Uh, you know, uh, we do stuff with the uh, drug enforcement agencies, national drug enforcement agencies, and uh, so we did a lot of things outside warden service. But we did an uh, extreme amount with the fisheries and wildlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, we're, we're it, Maine's all one organization, but it's some. We called ourselves game wardens. Some places call themselves conservation officers. officers. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so it was a little bit separated that way, but uh, we, we all worked together. Uh, you know, the, the fishers and wildlife, they didn't have, they don't have airplanes. Uh, they often sometimes used forestry too. Forestry had a 185 and they had helicopters. But, Hueys. Uh, yeah. They had Hueys. Yeah. yeah. Um, also a helicopter base there at Greenville. Right. Right across the way. That's right. Yeah. Um, but most often they'd use the you know the three one eighty fives. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you moved on at some point, and now you've become this amazing innovator of aviation <laughs> application products. And uh, you're also very engaged in the community in Maine and in the seaplane community and the bush flying community. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I know you've done test flights. Uh, we did a story, uh, what, a year or two ago on 
our friend uh, Jim's uh, Carbon Cub that mm-hmm. came out on the PK 2050s. That's right. And uh, great flying airplane. It is. <laughs> Amazing Fantastic. performance. Amazing airplane. Um, so you did all the test flying on those floats. Uh, so again, I mean, the, the breadth of what you've done in your career and your involvement in seaplane and bush flying community is amazing. And now you've started a whole series of companies. You've got seaplane outfitters, uh, paddle pumps, um, T3 tailwheel, which you developed, which was a game changing tailwheel for 185s. Uh, but let's talk about seaplane outfitters. So you've developed the paddle pump, uh, I think was the first, uh, big product which we have one here. I have one in my office and, and the seaplane pilots association is going to be selling as soon as we can get some in stock, uh, which we will. Uh, but it's unique because, uh, describe the product because it's kind of, uh, uh, two for one. Yeah. So back a while ago, I was looking at a product that it was a collapsible paddle that we had in the, in the seaplane. And I'm thinking, well, why can't we put two of these together, put a pump and a paddle together? And it took me five years to get it right or to get it so it was going to be, you know, a, a long lasting item. And, um, and finally got it to a point now that it really works really, really well. Uh, I got it patented. Uh, there's two parts of the paddle is a valve that's patented and the, and the paddle pump itself is patented. Um, the, uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a paddle and a pump together. It's and the shaft. The, yeah. So the shaft of the, the paddle screws and locks in place, and mm-hmm. then you can un- unlock it just by loosening up a collar right. and you can use it as a pump. And right. so it has a, a, a float cup receptacle at the bottom of the paddle mm-hmm. and it goes up through the center of the paddle, traditional paddle shape. Uh, and then the, the shaft uh, or the arm of the, the paddle becomes a pump and comes, right. actually comes out the handle, it comes which out is the unique. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, it works really, really well. Uh, it was a fun project to work on. Um, uh, I, uh, I now have a partner with that, uh, is Sky Cowboys, uh, John Hartz. And John has been fantastic. He's a, he's a marketing guy for me. I'm, just, I, I'm not much of a marketing person, but, but John has uh, done really well, really well with it. And, uh, Super nice guy. He, he's he's been involved with it from the very begin, you know beginning. He's been interested with it, um, and it's pretty impressive because you can literally like also use it as an air pump and inflate an uh, an air mattress with it or something. Exactly. So we've done that. Uh, we have a video showing that we did. Uh, we I could pump up an aircraft tire to fifty pounds or, or fifty pounds. Yeah. Now so. this is a a float pump. That's a paddle. So we always need a paddle on our floats that's or right. in our airplane. That's we right. always need float pumps. That's right. And on top of it, usually we're camping. And if you had a flat tire on your amphibs or or even your bush tires, uh, or you need you know you're camping and have an air mattress, uh, this can do all of it. And it, you have a little hose that goes on it and everything. Right. We we. We 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 haven't marketed the holes yet for the pumping up a tire or anything like that because we're just you know we're just this is all new as far as the marketing part of it and and we're but we're working on all kinds of different avenues uh, for the paddle pump we've come up with an amphib pump which is a shorter version that would go underneath your the cover of your floats and snaps there with a little mount that we have and uh, where it's not as long you can stand outside on the tarmac uh, and do the you do your pre-flight pumping out the floats and uh so that seems to be going really well also uh the same valve system it just doesn't have the paddle blade on it it's just a pump and but it's real short so again on the supercar on the on my 2100s it'll 
actually snap up. You've got a little snap mm-hmm. uh, holder, like a mag light mount or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it just snap up under the, the hatch. Mm-hmm. It's very light. It is. Also. It is. It which is, is always a concern for us. It's, it's small and it's light and it doesn't take up a lot of room because it's in this area that generally we aren't using. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, so great little pump. I hope we uh, can get those in and mm-hmm. sell them uh, at the Seaplane Pilots Association on the website as well. Great. And we'll bring them around to the trade shows because great little pump. Okay. Good. Uh, and uh, then you've also done the duckbill uh, uh, float cup valves uh, for the, for the uh, right. plugs. So the duckbill valve started long ago with, uh, I was at Kenmore with Bob Monroe and showed him what I had. And uh, it was a little bit different design than it is today. Um, but we, they immediately took it on and um, worked with it. They, I think they carried it. They still carry it, I think, now. But um, it en- ended up going on to Lake and Air. Uh, they carried it for, oh, gosh, must have been 10 or 15 years. And, uh, and then just recently, a year, probably three years ago, I came up with a different version of the valve and, um, rather than sp- the old valve being used with springs and, and, and a round polypropylene ball, these new valves are just all rubber and uh, with a duckbill valve built into it. It's a three-part uh, component, and um, it, they work extremely well. They're a third the cost of the old ones you were. Uh, they... Uh, well, let's describe the old ones. So the old ones look like a little white ping pong ball, a miniature white ping pong ball, and it was on a shaft with a little spring, right. and it would go in and replace your traditional float plug. That's right. And when you would pump and suck with the, the float pump, it would uh, compress the spring. The suction would compress the spring and allow the water to come out. But when you weren't pumping, the spring would seal uh, the plug. Right. So it was a one, essentially a one-way valve mm-hmm. because of the spring. But this is is mechanically much simpler, the new one. Right. Uh, less complex, and, and there's a lot less to go wrong. Right. So this valve, this new valve here is, uh, the, the compound is actually made called Sarlink, and it's, a, it's almost a little sticky feeling. And when it sits down into the cup of the float, uh, it stays there without adhesive, um, when you're when you're flying when you're landing on rough water, the air actually burps out the valve and pulls it down tight and allows the the, the um, plug to stay in the float without being pushed out from air pressure. The pontoon, it, so all the air is burped out of the valve, and the, so the the plug remains tight. Um, so the plug stays in and never comes out. You put your pump over it. You pump your pump your floats out. Uh, and there's no more bending down or, you know, if you're standing on... Or the- losing a plug. I just lost uh, on this 5,000-mile cross-country we did. I lost, of all things, one float plug. I have no idea where it went. Mm-hmm. And it must have just come out in flight from, from working its way out, like you were saying. Yeah. Never had that happen before. But I had, you know... Now I have replacements. Yeah. Well, you know, there could be a reason for that, too. In Alaska, I had a, had a customer say, yeah, these are the greatest things. You know, the ravens won't grab them and take them out of the floats anymore. Ah, yeah. So the birds were actually taking the Because balls. you have the little, yeah, you have the you little string on it, and they see it, they, and yeah. they're attracted to it. But, you know, I was thinking about it also. We were going from 18-degree weather down into the warm weather here. Oh. And there might have been some expansion that right. maybe burped it out. Right. Something like right. that. I don't know. So if yes, yeah, so if you where this sl- would self burp. That's right. So 
the solid plug would be pushed out. Yeah. This here would burp the air out of the valve. Yeah. And so that could have been a contributing factor because we were literally, we went through, you know, like a 60 degree change. That's yeah. huge oh, for the volume yeah, of a float. It is, it is absolutely. So that's really cool. So you can look these up. Uh, so Seaplane Outfitters has the new float plug uh, for sale, mm-hmm. the duck bills. And then uh, paddlepumps.com has the uh, paddle pumps and the new smaller pump as yeah. well. Yeah. And these can also be used for canoeing. I mean, uh, we shouldn't fail to mention that, that it's not just for seaplanes, but you can dual use it for for a canoe. That's right. So uh, they can be used for canoe. And I mean, you can you, bail the canoe with you it. You can bail a canoe. Yeah, it'll do, it, it, they'll do a lot. We, had, we do have a watercraft version. It has a different end on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ends that you get are, there's three, there's three versions. One's a PK float version. One's a everything, every other float version. Uh, it'd be whips or, t- uh, or arrow sets or uh, Bowmans or whatever they may be, Edo's. Um, and then there's a third. It's called a watercraft version. It's just got a smaller end on it. Cool. That's awesome. So uh, I don't want to fail to mention the T3, which is this really innovative spring tailwheel uh, that's kind of taken off as well. Yeah, it's not necessarily a seaplane product, but... Uh, we should it, mention it because if you fly a 185, there's a good chance you might put it on wheels or... Yeah, um, you know, the uh, most of them are, on, are going on uh, tailwheel spring type uh, airplanes like Cubs and stuff like that and experimentals. Um, very close to getting STC uh, for the Super Cub, and shortly after would be the 170, uh, and then on from there, and uh, adding models to the list of S- to the list on the STC. But uh, it's gone very well. Uh, Airframes Alaska, I give a big salute to them. They they have helped me uh, market the thing and and do a really good job building it and selling it for me. Um, and you can put an oversized tailwheel on it, which you, is kind of. The design. Yeah, it allows any type of tailwheel you want to put on it. Uh, you can put a baby bush wheel on it, or you can put a Matco or whatever you want to put on the air, on mm. the on the suspension. Uh, it's uh, a lot of companies like Glassier, uh, right out of the factory, they're using these. Um, there was a service bulletin on the on the Glassiers where it was cracking. The old springs were cracking the tail, and uh, so now the companies decided to use C3s. So I think that's the the thing we should talk about is what's the big innovative feature about this is, you know, for those people that may not have flown tailwheel airplanes, um, the the whole empennage can take a terrible stress uh, impact when you do a landing. Mm -hmm. And and that is a lever arm. That's a huge lever arm out there. Right. And the amount of stress that that puts on those empennages is unbelievable and and so this helps reduce that through it, the design it does so the shocks have a rebounding uh, 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 dampening effect so the dampening effect is is what's really in, in uh, the biggest part of this t3 or, or this product is when energy is hit when you t- hit the tail down you don't have all that energy being displaced back up where you know the elevators are jumping up and down or or uh you know the the stresses are are you know, resonating through the fuselage uh so the the tail wheel the the rebound effect of the rebound dampening part of it is the huge part of it it's and uh that's what's like the Rand's aircraft. They were breaking tails also. They were cracking the laundrons in their fuselage, and they went to this T three, and it stopped. Uh, so, all in all, there's over there's almost two thousand of them out there now. Suspensions and in the past five years, and it's, it's, 
it's gone very well. It's going to go. It's going to continue to do really, really well. So we're going to lose our space here that we're in. We've kind of robbed uh, some quiet space, uh, and I know they're going to kick us out. But we don't want to f- uh, fail to mention the the trip you're going to do. Which I hope you know. It's actually it came to me as we're talking. We need to like cover your trip on the podcast and follow you. So you're about to do a Maine to Alaska trip, and it's going to be a fundraising event. You've invited me to go. I don't know that I can get the time to go, but I, I would. it's going to really be difficult for me not to take you up on that. But describe uh, what you're about to do with this big adventure that you're going to do and raise money. So this trip is, a, is a, there's three of us on Amphibs that are going across from Maine to Alaska. One actually is coming down from Florida is going to Alaska. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's going to be just, it's basically a big vacation for the three of us. Uh, there's going to be a fundraising component to it. Uh, there's a University of Maine offers a scholarship program for uh, new pilots. And uh, so we're going to help them a little bit. I'm not sure how that's all going to be um, how that's all going to work out as far as the fundraising part of it, but we're going to definitely do something with them to help that uh, that organization get new new pilots on board with it with through awareness or through you know selling shirts or whatever. And anything we can do to raise money and help scholarship programs and anything is is great. And again, shows how pro, uh, proactive we are as pilots in the seaplane community, helping uh, others. Mm-hmm. And and so again, thank you for the advocacy role that you're doing on that. So that's uh, also has a website, Maine to Alaska dot com. Right. So uh, you'll be able to follow the journey uh, when you do it. When, and when's the trip depart again? Uh, June 1st. June 1st, which is hard because we're preparing for AirVenture. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I hope uh, it would be nice to be able to follow you on the journey, maybe check in with you uh, here and there, uh, we're gonna, do a little podcast uh, check-in. We're going to do that. It's gonna, we're going to try to do that through the, through the, um, through the website. And, you know, you'll be able to follow us or have links to... Um, uh, you know, in reach or whatever it could be uh, to follow the journey and we'll keep it updated with blogs and that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking time out of Sun and Fun. Um, and uh, what have we failed to, to talk about here? It's so good to get together with you and kind of, I mean, we could do a podcast on each like portion. We, we were discussing that going into the podcast that there's, there's the Alaska part, there's the, the game warden part. There's the, the whole innovation stuff that, that you're doing. There's, there's three, four podcasts here without that. And then you talk about this big journey from Maine to Alaska. What, ha- in the limited time that we have had, what have we failed to talk about? Oh, my goodness. Um, the, uh, I really don't know what you'd like. We'll, bring, we'll come back. Yeah, we'll, we'll come, come back. back to that. That's fine. Yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, What's your greatest memory or the greatest thing you can share with pilots as uh, advice or wisdom in their seaplane flying? Well, um, being on Amphibs for me is somewhat new. Uh, and I guess checking, making sure your gear is down in, in the podcast that you just recently did. Uh, uh, they, they, yeah, or gear up for water. Yeah, that's, yeah. In, that's fantastic information. So that, um, I guess, another situation that I see is uh, an interesting situation is, a, is a, an overcast day on a glassy water landings, you know, where it's really difficult to see the, you know... Depth just, perception. Just depth perception, and... yeah. Um, you know, I when I get sunglasses i don't usually get polarized glasses i usually get non-polarized so i can see the surface uh but uh yeah i guess 
There's so many things we could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have you back and we'll talk about it more. And we were talking about that low light situations, soft light situations, Mm -hmm. even when it's not pure glassy water in soft light or low light, it can be, it can kind of emulate glassy water conditions. So if you're flying at sunrise or sunset or in a cloudy day or the, the further North you go, uh, the light gets softer uh, this is I, I I'll we'll bring you back and we'll have that conversation. That'd be great. So uh, Dan Default, uh, thank you so much. Please go visit seaplaneoutfitters.com, paddlepumps.com, pumps plural, Maine to Alaska, and check out the t3tailwheel.com as well. Thank you for all you've done in your service to the community, uh, for all the innovation that you're bringing to the table. And uh, we'll look forward to exploring some of these more advanced techniques and some of your adventures and, and, you know, ways you've developed your skills in the future. Thanks, Steve. Okay, great having you on. Until next time, uh, fly safe, fly often, keep listening, and we really appreciate it. Don't forget to share Waterflying Podcast with your friends. Thanks. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.